It was my 10th or 11th birthday, and I had a gift from my parents, and it was very heavy. And as I took off the wrapping, I could see that in the parcel were three books, and I took them out one by one. The first one was The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. The second was The Lord of the Rings, and the third one was a heavy hardback biography of Oliver Cromwell. I'm not sure what they were thinking of giving this to their 10 or 11-year-old son, but they had high hopes. And, uh, and so uh, the books by Tolkien captured my imagination. The biography of Oliver Cromwell, not so much. I don't think I ever read it all the way through. I, I don't know if he even read it. But, uh, but anyway, I love reading. And I trace my passion for reading back to these memories, getting stuck in a book, lost in a world, being introduced to new thoughts and ideas. And so for the past 10 years, I've been strategically and intentionally surrounding my girls with books, reading to them, introducing them to the famous five, to Mallory Towers, to the Magic Treehouse. And uh, we go to the library um, nearly weekly, Uh, And I think it's an amazing gift that we have this wonderful institution here in Northgore, just around the corner. And all the girls enjoy being read to, particularly the long stories that we can get stuck into week after week after week. And then just just the week before last, I walked into the living room and I stopped in my tracks. I just drank in the moment. It was magical. Because there was my Emma. Let's have the, the next slide. Yeah, next one. Oh, and again. Okay, if you go back, you, this is my fault. This isn't Emma's fault. This is my fault. So picture this. I walk into the living room, and there I see my youngest daughter, Maya. She's lying on the couch. She has one hand behind her head, and her other hand was holding a chapter book, and it was open. And the book was called Timmy in Trouble. And it had a picture of a cute little dog on the front. And at that moment, I thought, I've made it. My three girls are all readers. They had all made the transition from being read to to being readers themselves. And this moment was a defining moment in my journey as a father. I thought perhaps now my dream will come true. And my dream is that when my girls are teenagers, we'll go out to a breakfast place or a coffee shop and I'll have my Kindle and I'll have their books with them. And as we're there sat waiting for our meal, we won't engage in conversation. Instead, we'll all be sat there in a companionable companionable silence, each reading our own books, but just enjoying each other's company. Because as a reader myself, I want my girls to be readers. Of course, I'll love them whether they are or not. But because I know, the, uh, because I know firsthand the joys of getting lost in a book, I want them to know this joy as well. Because I know how books have formed my life I want them to experience this as well. I want them to know what I know. I want them to experience what I've experienced. And a status update on Timmy in trouble. Maya told me last night she's now halfway through. This is very exciting. 
So, if we can go back a few slides, right back to the beginning. That's awesome, thank you. Okay, let's turn to the book of Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to focus on one specific verse, which is verse 19. And as you're turning there, I will uh, read it to you. Um, But I'll start at verse 18, and we'll go through to verse 20. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. This letter is written by a desperate man. It's written to a church who are being tempted to exchange the freedom that they have in Christ um, for legalism or to swap the relationship that they have with Christ for a list of rules. And so Paul is on fire. This is not a calm, collected letter. Instead, Paul is rattling off a series of impassioned pleas and fiery reminders. Paul's tone is not that of a reasonable preacher. Instead, it's the voice of a passerby telling someone not to jump. Don't do it. It's urgent. And they have to listen to him. It sounds like he's barely holding it together. For example, in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away. In chapter 3, verse 1, he calls them foolish. Um, In chapter 1, verse 8, he calls a curse on false preachers. Um, In chapter 2, verse 11, he tells them about a public face-off that he and the apostle Peter had because of Peter's hypocritical lifestyle. Imagine if someone wrote a letter about you to the whole church and said, they're hypocrites. This is what he was doing in this letter. He talks about the Galatians gouging out their eyes in chapter 4 verse 15. He tells them that he's perplexed, that he's confused. He wishes that his opponents would cut off their man parts in chapter 5 verse 12. And it's in this book. Yeah, you can go look. Chapter 5, verse 12. Have a look. (laughs) And it's in this book that Paul describes life like he's in labor. Chapter 4, verse 19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And it's on this little phrase that I want us to focus today. Last week in Craig's final sermon, he referenced his life verse, um, and this and and the closest that I would have to a life verse is Acts chapter twenty, verse twenty-four, where it says, "However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me—the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace." That is my life verse. However, I'm in a new season of life starting now. I'm your pastor. And during this season, a new verse has been coming to me. It's not replacing Acts 20 verse 24, but it supplements it. And it gives meaning and 
trajectory to what I'm doing in Cornerstone on a day-to-day basis and from week to week. And it's my prayer for this church, and it's my prayer for you, my little children. Please don't think I'm being patronizing or condescending. This is what Paul said. It's in the verse, but I'm not being patronizing. Please believe me. But this is my prayer for you, my my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And if I'm honest, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the language that he uses, labor and childbirth. I can't get out of my mind this picture of a pregnant Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie Junior. But, uh, But Paul is not trying to be whimsical or funny here. It's as if Paul's trying to think of the most excruciating thing he can possibly think of. And so he goes through all the things that cause a man pain and all falls short. It doesn't capture the depth of agony that he's looking for. Joanna Krizistanek was carrying triplets when she went into labor extremely early. One of the... One of the babies was born prematurely and actually died. So to save the other two, the doctors had her do something unusual. They had her lie nearly upside down in an attempt to keep the babies in. She assumed this awkward stance or position and she held it for weeks Fortunately, her doctors said they managed to ease her contractions, but she was considered to be in labor from the time the first child was, was born. Finally, after two and a half months of lying almost upside down in labor, on February the 15th, she gave birth to a girl called Iga and a boy called Ignasi. Amazing. In this verse, Galatians 4.19, Paul says, this isn't the first time that I felt this way. He says, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. He's experienced this depth of emotion already. And though there are times when God intervenes in a miraculous way to bring health and maturity, often The process of being made whole and holy in God, which we call sanctification, is a long process. There are steps forward followed by setbacks, steps forward followed by setbacks. And I'm sure we've experienced these sins that we just can't seem to shake, those sins that just hold on to us, whether it's, it's, it's alcoholism or sexual sin, whether it's anger or envy, it just always seems to be sitting around the corner waiting for us, waiting to spring again and get us in its clutches and claws. In preparing for the big give with a team of amazing volunteers, I came across a book, Fifty Shades of Grey. There it was, ready to be handed out by a church. Great. So thank you to whoever donated that book. If you don't know about it, don't look it up. Just take it from me. It's not good. I've not read it, but it's not good. So I did the only thing that I could do, and I threw it into the paper recycling. So not only is my radar for sin very sharp, but I'm also environmentally conscious when I deal with it. (laughs) 
So as your pastor, that should give you great comfort. And there was another book that, made it, that nearly made its way into our giveaway called The Art of Seduction. Apparently, we were on a roll. So I went through the books and I got rid of all of those that either made sin okay or promoted sin or were questionable. So after filtering through our books, imagine my surprise when halfway through or late on in the morning of the big give, Zach comes up to me and says, Dan, come see this. So I hurried over and there was another copy of Fifty Shades of Grey. And my heart dropped. All I could think of was how long had that book been sitting in our giveaway in our church parking lot as people walk by going, okay, so you're that kind of church. (laughs) Still, I'm glad that no one took it. And so Zach snuck it under his coat and he destroyed it. And so sometimes like these books, uh, despite our best efforts, these sins just don't seem to go away. They keep on appearing in our lives. And I remember as a teenager, hoping against hope that this would be the last time that I thought that thought about that girl at school or at church, that this would be the last time that I played out that fantasy in my mind, only to find out that perhaps even the same day that there I was again, thinking those thoughts again, playing out that scenario in my mind. And this is why it's so important that we don't give up either in our fight against sin or worldliness or temptation. But it's just as important that we're praying for those who are going through the mill. And looking at you right now, we don't know who's going through the mill, but there are people here for sure who are going through the mill. Perhaps it's even your pastor. As a prayer, as someone who prays, it's easy to give up and to say, Well, you're doing it again. You've messed up again. You should know better. You should have moved on by now. Come on. And perhaps they should. But here Paul gives us an amazing example of perseverance, of keeping on praying, of praying and not giving up. Jesus told us the parable of the unjust judge in Luke 18 verse 1 with one specific in mind so that those who were hearing would pray and not lose heart because it's easy to pray and lose heart. It's easy to throw up our hands, to move on and to pray for other important concerns. It's easy for us to stare at the implacable face of a mountain and say, I just can't do it. But the heart of Jesus is to pray and not lose heart. And the encouragement of Paul is to say, here I am again in the anguish of childbirth. Let's uh, flick on. Please, Emma. Oh, there she is. There's, if you're listening to this online later, there's now a nice picture of Maya, my little daughter, holding a book called Timmy in Trouble. There you go. Okay, if we, if we could go on. And again. And one more time. And one more time again. And one more time again. Okay, I don't know what's happened. Anyway, let's, let's turn to Exodus chapter 17, uh, verse 11. If you can go back to the picture of uh, Maya, that, that would be awesome. 
Exodus chapter 17, verse 11. It says this, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, verse 12. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So Israel are fighting the Amalekites. And Moses is praying for the battle happening there below him. But he's been there for a few hours, and so his arms are starting to get tired. They're starting to drop. And each time his hands drop, the Israelites start losing. And just behind Moses is his brother Aaron and a guy who's oddly enough named Hur. So let's listen in on their conversation. Hur says, well, Aaron, your brother's looking pretty tired. And Aaron says, yeah, but he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. Just let him do it. God's got him. God will never give him more than he can handle. Don't worry. Maybe 10 minutes passes on. And Hur says to Aaron, "Uh, Aaron, Moses' hands have dropped to his sides again. He's about to keel over. And listen, you can hear the sound of our brothers dying in the battle below. You think we should do something? Aaron says, well, I'm not sure. I mean, he's the man of God. He's the one who who, who God has called. And I don't want to interrupt. And besides, prayer is a private matter. You know, to just barge over there and assume that he needs our help. I mean, won't that offend him? Hur says, okay, if you say so. And underneath them, in the valley, you can hear the clash of arms and the death screams of the Israelite soldiers. Aaron and Hur can see with their very own eyes that the battle has turned. They can see the formations of the Amalekite soldiers as they push through the Israelite lines. It's beginning to turn into a rout. Five minutes later, Hur says, Aaron, Aaron responds, Her, you're right. Let's go. You two, bring that stone over for Moses to sit on. Her, you grab his right hand, and I'll grab his left. Without Moses praying, the Israelites would not have won the battle. But without Aaron and her physically raising Moses' weary hands and bringing him a stone to sit on, Moses could not have continued praying. And so from what we see from Moses' example, from Jesus' teaching, and from Paul's prayer, we know that there is a connection between the prayers of a leader and the success of a body of believers. But, but the leader cannot pray in isolation. Prayer is hard work. Intercessory prayer leads to emotional and even physical exhaustion. The praying pastor needs to be surrounded by prayers. The leader needs others to, to, to come alongside and lift his weary hands and find him a stone to sit on so that he can continue doing what he has been called to do. We're facing a battle, a battle against our culture, a battle against those who would dethrone God, and the battle against faithlessness and sin in our own ranks. One of the fronts 
of the battle as a church that we have at the moment is our finances. We don't have the finances that we need to do the work that God's calling us to do. And because we have this shortfall, we're spending more and more time worrying about finances. And each moment we spend worrying about this is one moment less that we're thinking about the lost outside our walls. And each hour we spend trying to figure out how we're going to pay our bills and meet our financial commitments is one less hour that we're spending on forward thinking and strategizing how can we win lost souls for Christ. Therefore, we need to not give. We need to be praying. And I need to be praying and you need to be praying. And I'm convinced that if we take ownership of prayer, you lifting up my hands in prayer and me praying for you, that we will see the battle turning. That we will see areas of previous loss turn into gain. And that's not because prayer is magical, but it's because we're welcoming God into a situation to do what only he can do. Only God could turn the tide of the battle but he invited Moses and Aaron and her to be part of the solution. He invited every fighting man in the valley below to become part of the solution. So when Paul says, I am again in the anguish of childbirth, he was joining the ranks of those heroes before him who prayed and prayed and prayed and witnessed miracles. If Moses had not prayed with Aaron and her support, the children of Israel would have been whittled away in battle. A little loss here and a little loss there until there was nothing less. The Israelites would, would have battled themselves into non-existence. And with every swing of his sword, every soldier in that valley could have screamed, this is for God, this is for God, but it would have made no difference at all. And similarly, we can strategize, we can plan, we can come up with, with schemes and solutions. But if we're not praying and inviting God to do what only he can do, we're just whittling our way, ourselves away into non-existence. We're expending ourselves for nothing. It may look good. It may look impressive. We may have good form. We may have been working up a good sweat for Jesus. Our armor may look good and dirty and really dusty, but we still lose, we still fail. And like so many other churches filled with sincere people, Cornerstone will strategize her way into non-existence if we do not take prayer seriously. And that means that me as the pastor of this church praying for you, and that means for you as this church supporting me and lifting my hands up in prayer and not quitting until the battle is done. Pray and do not give up. And I will pray along with Paul again and again and again. And I will aim to enter into that place where you are so much on my mind and heart that it starts to hurt, that it starts to feel like the anguish of childbirth. And the glorious thing about childbirth is that it is a time of excruciating pain followed by a time of exquisite joy. The baby cannot be born without the screams of labor. In that labor room, this woman is single-minded. She's not thinking about the carpet at home that needs shampooing or making sure that she books time off work for holiday next year. She's thinking about one thing only. 
And so this child is born into a world of noise and light and chaos and blood and energy and exhaustion. But the baby is born, and surely that's all that matters. That's the only thing that matters. And so Paul is praying for his church here. They're in the midst of a time of testing. So maybe he prays for endurance. Or, or, or they're fault, facing false teachers and, and false doctrines. So perhaps he's praying for, for discernment and for wisdom. They're facing the enslavement of legalism. So perhaps he prays for freedom. But no, and no, and no. In this short verse, Paul specifically prays for one thing and one thing only. Until Christ is formed in you. We use this phrase, accepting Jesus into our heart, as another way of describing salvation, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about something else, something that he, he needs to remind the Galatian church about. It's something that he says in this verse can ebb and flow. It's something that the church can lose. It's something that the church can become complacent over, that they can lose their sharp edge in. It's something that the church can become flabby and soft and lazy and careless in. And it's this thing that keeps Paul up at night. This is what's haunting his dreams. This is what's causing him spiritual pain akin to the physical pain of childbirth that Christ may be formed in them. This is what it's all about. This is a verse that sums up the entirety of this book. All of the pleading and the bullying and the warning and the cajoling and the anger that Paul expresses is summed up in these five words, until Christ is formed in you. And I can think of no more wonderful five-word summary of what Cornerstone is all about than these five words. We exist as a church so that Christ might be formed in us. This is the heart of no grow show, that Christ might be formed in us, that, might, that Christ might be formed in others. This is that, that, that we might know the growth of Christ in our lives, overtaking our lives, becoming the one thing who controls our very beings, our decision-making, our planning, our priorities, until Christ is formed in you. That's what it's all about. That's the heartbeat of evangelism. That's the heartbeat of um, of disciples, making more disciples. That's why we are here on earth. In the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, it says this, For in him the whole fullness of deity li- lives in bodily form, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. We have been given fullness in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Let's just move forward a few, a few slides, Emma, please. Yeah, and again. Yep, there it is. Excellent. Yep. Okay, one more. Okay. So I'm just going to show you what's written in these verses. And as I go on to the next one, Emma, just keep on sliding forward. Philippians 1, 3 to 6, shows us that it all depends on God from start up until the end. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 to 29, assures us that it's Christ in us 
as the hope of glory. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 and 10 explains that in having Christ forming in us, we are filled with the whole trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is why the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, to enable this amazing truth to be lived out, the Godhead living in you, living in me. 1 Peter 3, 14 to 16 highlights that Christ forming in us is the very reason we have anything to share with anyone. 2 Peter 1, verse 3 to 4 reminds us that as Christ is forming in us, we have everything we need for the overflowing and abundant Christian life. And finally, 2 Peter 1, 5 to 8 shows, shows us that having Christ forming in us is the foundational reason for holy living that keeps us from being unfruitful and ineffective in our knowledge of Jesus. 2 Peter 1, 5-8 says this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and, stead- and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope that you're starting to see why this prayer is so important, that as we start this new chapter, I need to be praying this for you. This is my shepherd's prayer. This is my pastor's prayer. This is my desire for myself, for you, and for Cornerstone Wesleyan Church. It's a prayer that we should allow to take hold of us and to grip us, and to infiltrate our very marrow until we are transformed. I will be praying it for you, and in turn I ask that you will be lifting up my hands in prayer, and as this happens, the tide will turn. Hearts will be transformed. Finances won't be an issue, because our hearts will be metamorphosed to resemble Christ's. Our church culture will overflow into the culture around us. We will see people coming to Christ. We will start praying this prayer for them, that Christ might be formed in them. We will start praying it for our unsaved parents or our children who are backslidden. This phrase that sums up the message of the gospel, we will be praying it again and again and again until our heart's cry will be until Christ is formed in you. And we'll turn about and we'll pray it for ourselves until Christ is formed in me. This is what sanctification means. As Christ grows and grows in us, there's less and less room for self until all that we are becomes all about him. So Paul, who is pregnant with prayer for others, is praying that they might become pregnant with Christ. Paul is about to burst with life and pain and hope. He's in the anguish of childbirth, praying that the Galatians get to the, to, to the point of being in the anguish of childbirth themselves. And as followers of Christ, we are called to the labor pains that will bring life for others, which will result in their labor pains that will bring life for others, that will result in their labor pains that will bring life for others, that will result in their labor pains that brings life for others. And so we never have to be stuck with words in prayer again. 
regardless of the situation, regardless of the person, regardless of their specific needs, regardless of how they view Jesus, we can pray again and again and again, Christ be formed in them until Christ is formed in them. I remember the day my three daughters became readers. All those years of investing and reading and patience and sitting and pointing with my finger at the words, all those years of school and training and phonics paid off, all those years of saying, sound it out, come on, you can do it, was worth it. Dan, who is a reader, saw his three daughters become readers. I could stand there quietly watching my youngest daughter with her book in hand, lost in the story of a little dog whose name is Timmy. And how much more wonderful will it be when we are on the the new earth to meet those whom we agonized over, whom we invested in, whom we discipled, whom we shared the message of the gospel with, who we prayed for standing there saying, thanks for not quitting on me. Thanks for never giving up. Thanks for continuing to pray for me. Back then, I didn't understand, but now I understand. And this is my prayer for you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. May we be a church that is pregnant with the message of the gospel, pregnant with the life-giving message of the cross, pregnant with the message that Jesus saves until Christ is formed in me, until Christ is formed in us, until Christ is formed in you.